Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Hear the word of God. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two, these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's holy inerrant word endures forever. May he bring his blessing to us. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, wrote many uh, proverbs that were purposed to teach us the way of life and conduct as God's people. And one of the preeminent ones that I think comes early on in the book of Proverbs is uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And most of you, I think, have heard this at one point or another. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Keep your heart. That word keep can be translated preserve or guard or watch over and in... The Old Testament, many times when you see that word guard or preserve, it's the same thing. Keep it. Protect it. Put a hedge around it. Don't lose sight. Watch over your heart with all diligence because out of it springs the issues of life. Now, what does that mean, the issues of life? What we're being told by God with this proverb is that your heart is the source of all your actions, decisions, determinations, affections, and pursuits. Don't kid yourself. Have you ever had that moment when you have jokingly said something to someone, it offended them, and you realize you offended them, and then afterwards you said, I was just joking, or I didn't mean it, or I I don't know why I said that. You know, those last three statements were all lies. We did mean to say it. That's why we said it. We meant what was meant by it because that's what's in our heart. And here this proverb comes and says, keep your heart, watch your heart, guard your heart, because out of it comes all your actions, all your decisions, all your determinations, all your affections, all your pursuits. It is from your heart that you live your life. Now, understand When the 
Bible uses the word heart, whether it's in the Old or the New Testament, they don't mean what we mean today. When we speak of from the heart, we are saying there is so much love or affection or it's all about our emotions. That's not what the Bible means when it says heart. It is talking about your soul. It is talking about your mind, your conscience, your will, and your affections. It's talking about that inner man in all its fullness. And it's saying, watch over your mind, your will, your conscience, your affections. Keep a guard over what you set as the love of your life, as the thing that you purpose to do. Because all of your actions, decisions, and determinations, all of your affections and pursuits, they come from your heart. Now, as Christians, we know there's a great dilemma there. Because what does God tell us about our heart? <laughs> Jeremiah 79. You know, many of you know it well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. Now perhaps that's offending some of you. You look at yourself and you say, I am not desperately wicked. God says you are. He's the one who has searched your heart and who makes that declaration. And it is something, especially as Christians, for us to take note of. We know that we have been redeemed. We know that our heart has been changed. We know that we are new creations in Christ. Paul's been dealing with that aspect here. The justifying work of God upon our lives has made us a people born again in His grace, by His love for His Son, and through His Son, by His love for us. We have been changed. Our heart is no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer under that power of sin where we cannot help but do wrong, even when it comes to making good choices. But that's all changed for us as Christians. However, that sin nature is still there. And God still knows the desperate nature of a sinful heart. Perhaps more than we do. Now saying that we have a desperately wicked heart, that our hearts are deceitful above all things, does not mean that we sin in very grievous, wicked ways all of the time. But that's also by the grace of God. We are not as bad sinners as we could be. That's the truth. Think about it. How many of you have ever hated someone so much that you have said something to the degree, I wish they weren't around anymore? Now, did you act on that? Thank God you didn't. <laughs> I mean that literally. Thank God you didn't. There's many people who do. We're never really as bad and as sinful as we could be. Yet we have this depravity 
within us where we are open to all sin. God, even with Noah, after he said with Noah, here is a righteous man upon whom I bestow my favor and upon him and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and their wives, I will deliver them from this world of wickedness and begin again. We know that story. But as soon as Noah and his three sons and their wives exited the ark and began to repopulate the earth, what did God look at Noah and his three sons and their wives and say? I see that the intentions of their heart are still continuously evil. And this is the one that he had favor in. And then what's the next thing you read about Noah, what he does? He builds a vineyard, plants it, ferments the grapes, and gets drunk and is lying naked. And then what do we read after that? What one of his son does? There's the depravity of the heart. And while we're never as sinful as we can be, we are, even as Christians, we are open to all sin. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And my friends, that's what Paul is getting at here when he tells us that we are to be walking in the Spirit. It's not because we don't sin anymore or we don't do any major grievous sins that really upset people. It's that we still have sin's presence within our hearts. And it's a warfare going on. The Spirit is waging that warfare. We're not. <laughs> I think that, that's the big thing we heard last week about this is, is that it is the Spirit who is waging that warfare against the lusts of my flesh. And I'm joined in with him now. But if the Spirit wasn't there, I wouldn't do it. If I did not have the Holy Spirit within me, I would not fight against my sin nature. That's, that's the bottom truth. You know, that's a biblical point. Paul makes that clear here. He says what in verse 16? Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's like what Solomon said as well too. He not only said, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. He's not telling you that you, in and of yourself, have any ability to deal with the sinful nature of your heart. What does he also say in one of the Psalms, Psalm 127.1? Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord is in your heart keeping it, it doesn't get kept. It's humbling. But there again is the glory of the grace of God at work in your lives, dear Christians. He is seeing to it that you should not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. The Holy Spirit is waging this warfare within you. And you need to be complicit with him in his ways. Walk in the Spirit. Now, why does Paul bring this up? Up to this point, Paul has been arguing uh, this case about being justified by faith and by 
faith alone that the only way that you can merit forgiveness from God, the only way that you can be pardoned of all your sins and accepted as righteous by God is if you have faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. It is not of your works that you are saved. There is no goodness you can do that will ever earn from God even the smallest mercy. Nothing. It's by grace alone. And you believe God in Christ for his mercy. God, and and that's what David says, God, I am resting on your mercies. He didn't come to God when he sinned so grievously and said, God, remember how many times I sought to do your will and called upon you before I went out and did anything so that you would have the glory. Remember when I killed Goliath and I, I gave all that glory to you. God, will you have mercy on me? He didn't say that, did he? What did he say? According to your tender mercies, forgive me, cleanse me. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We are relying solely on God's grace to save us through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Your good works do not count for anything concerning God's grace. Now when you say that, the objection that always comes, and it came up in Paul's day, The objection to that truth and that doctrine by faith alone, in Christ alone, are we saved, are we pardoned, are we accepted by God? No other way. In Paul's day, in Reformation times, the Protestants battled the the Roman Catholic Church at that time over this. And even today... The objections that get raised to that doctrine of faith alone is this. Is that you are giving people a license to sin. That you are asking for people to solely rest in what Christ has done for them. Without good works, without a specific degree of repentance, without visible evidence of a lifestyle change. If you don't require that, then you're giving them a license to sin. Did you know that the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church had its beginnings over one of the issues being this very debate? How much repentance should we see in a person's life before we accept that they are truly a Christian? Now you think about that. When you see someone who is a murderer coming to faith, how much repentance would you require of him before you would declare him to be justified in Jesus Christ? Use the extreme example because it's easier to look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not a murderer, so I don't have as much of a problem. If you don't add something to that doctrine of justification then you're giving people a license to sin. That's always the argument. This is why I love the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross. At that moment, 
without any opportunity of righting wrongs, without any evidence of a changed life, without any ability to do good works. You know, that story of that thief on the cross isn't about us hoping for deathbed conversions. That's not what it's about. You might look at that and say, see, even near death, you can be saved. That's not what it's teaching. What it is showing us is that by faith in Jesus Christ, you have all that is necessary for you to be welcomed into eternal glory. Isn't that marvelous? And he had all he needed. And that's why the Lord could look at him and say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. He had no opportunity for anything else. There was no purgatory. There was no limbo. There was no second chance. Those are all things that are out there to explain away the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why it is the cornerstone doctrine of the church. Because it is saying if you have Christ, you have all you need for eternal glory. Thank God. And I ask you, I don't know all of you here this morning, but do you have all you need for eternal glory? Is Christ alone your hope of salvation? Is Christ the one that you are believing in for God to pardon your sin and to say to you, I accept you as righteous. Enter into my kingdom with the joy of the Lord. Do you know that? Keep your heart. Keep your heart in Christ. And so Paul brings us to this point. That objection to justification by faith alone is what we call a straw man argument. You're trying to build up this this argument against a truth that is foundational to the church and to the gospel. Because you think we have to be good people to be saved. Now Paul is clear here. He's clear to say, and we're focused on verses 19 to 21 now, But he's saying, look, the works of the flesh are evident. And that's his way of saying, look, justification is no more a license to sin than not being justified. Do the unrighteous have a license to sin? No. Nobody does. That's why God judges sin. We are not free to sin. Nobody ever is and has ever been allowed by God to freely sin. He has judged sinners with his just judgment. The works of the flesh are evident. Reminding us that there is an evident, if someone is justified, there will be something evident in their life. And that is change. Even Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And the works of the flesh are there. And and he lists 17 things. At least in the New King James Version, there's 17. If you have the 
ESD. Uh, it only has 15. Um, there's reasons for that, but uh, there's 17 in the New King James. And you know what is easy for us as Christians is to look at that list and sort through it and say, okay, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, I don't have any of that. Idolatry, well, I might have a love for money, but that's not that bad. Sorcery, I really, no, I'm not there. And we can start going through this list and picking and choosing the things and saying, that's not me, that's not me, oh, that might be me. It's not what this list is for. In fact, it's not a, a full list. Even though 17 specific sins are mentioned, Paul even says at the end, this isn't all of it. And the like, there's more. <laughs> like we, we could fill a scribbler of pages about the lusts of the flesh, the works of the flesh. What he does with this list is that he, he puts them in an order. He, he deals with the common sins of the flesh. Common, not uncommon. The common sins of the flesh. Sexual sins. That's what he begins with. Because preeminently, that's what you see in the world. <laughs> we think today, we see uh, the immorality of the world being expressed. Well, it was equally expressed in Noah's day, in Abraham's day, in Jesus' day. And sexual sins are, are some of the most common evident sins that show a sinful nature in the heart of man. That's his point. The deviant, impure, immoral, unrestrained, indecent forms that show self-gratification. That, that's the nature of sin and that is common in the world. And you have with the next two, idolatry and witchcraft. By the way, sorcery there is the Greek word for narco narcotics, drugs. That's what that word stands for. And, and drugs were used to involve one's life in, in uh, uh, witchcraft and sorcery and that sort of thing. And it's counted under that umbrella of religious sins. Has man always, in their sinfulness, been open to idolatry? <laughs> Read the Bible. Have Christians been open to idolatry? Read the Bible. That has always been. In fact, those first two, sexual and religious sins, were always the sins of Israel against God, the chosen people. And the social sins, very common. From hatred to envying to murders, and some of those in that list that you see there, uh, selfish ambitions, dissensions, outbursts of wrath, contentions, etc. Some of them we count as respectable sins, and we attribute them readily to basic human nature and basic interactions with people. Well, we all can't get along, as if that excuses our sinfulness. And alcoholic sins, drunkenness and revelries, it's inclusive of all the other sins that explode from it. <laughs> Let me ask you, as Paul puts those categories before us, sexual, religious, social, alcoholic, doesn't that still define the world today? 
These are the works of the sinful heart. This is the depravity that gets exposed before us every day in the world. And Paul's point in putting it here isn't for us to be like that Pharisee standing in the temple and saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not even like this tax collector over here. That's not what it's there for. It's there to remind us as Christians of what is yet still in our hearts. In our hearts. You look at the world today, the confusion that is going on in our world today. My friends, it's just, the world today has just simply said, okay, let be what is. (laughs) Paul is saying, is that what is seen as acceptable in the world is not the mark of the justified. Justification by faith alone in Christ. If you are a Christian and you affirm, I have been saved by Jesus Christ, I know I am in the kingdom of God. That is not a license to give yourself over to the works of the flesh. Keep your heart. These works of the flesh, as Paul has already said, are contrary to that new creation life that the Spirit gives to God's people. And I believe very much that Paul uses the word works here to describe it. Not just lusts as he did in verse 16. He calls them the works of the flesh because we're dealing with that desire for us to have our good works count for something. As Christians, we want our good works to be recognized. It's hard for them not to. We we have that desire for them to count for something in our life with God. Now, are they required? Yes, we heard already, didn't we? You are to be holy. And think of it as I said to the children. Holy, you are to be set apart because I, your God, am holy. And to be set apart from this world is to recognize that what is common to the world and what they want to do in the works of their flesh is not to be found in us. Do you ever count yourself to be immune to any sin? We can say, I can say at this point, I've never committed adultery or actual murder. Thank God. Don't see myself ever doing it. Does that mean I'm not immune to those sins anymore? No. You don't know what trial of temptation will be before you. You don't know what the desire to cover your ego, to shore up your pride, to make sure you do not face shame before people in the world or even before the church because you have committed a sin. You don't know what that that emotion will drive you to. Have ministers committed adultery? Yeah. Have some committed murder? Yes. 
We have one in Toronto just a few years ago. Shocking, isn't it? Paul is making us aware, no matter what good works you do, sin is also at work in you. It wants to work in you. Don't be ignorant of its presence. Don't be ignorant of its power. It may be a broken power, but what do we often say about a, a, an electrical line that is broken from the telephone pole? It may be cut off from the uh, electricity to connect it to the following wire, but it's still living. It's still live. You go to grab that electrical wire on the ground, you're going to get zapped. Sin is still in you. It's a living nature within our lives. And what Paul then goes on to say in verse 21, as well, is they're contrary to God's kingdom. The works of the flesh are against the kingdom of God. And he says, for shock value, and and I hope you get shocked by this, that those who practice those who give themselves over to these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. That word practice means to carry on habitually doing these things. Outbursts of wrath. Let's take the small ones there because we are going to look at the big ones and say that's not me, but outbursts of wrath. How many here as Christians struggle with that? How many here as parents struggle with that? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the shock that. That's, that, that's why Paul is talking here about the works of the flesh. And thankfully, note what Paul isn't saying. He is saying this is contrary to God's kingdom. But he isn't saying that anyone who commits one or all of these sins cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Otherwise, just by that example, none of us would. (laughs) He's actually defending justification here. He is saying, do you not understand that, that with sin still living within these bodies, within our hearts, even with the Spirit's battle, we struggle, we fall, we fall short. Of God's glory. Isn't it a great thing that justification holds us fast in the kingdom of God? That's his point. What is holding you in God's good grace? Is that he has already declared you are righteous. I have saved you. Your sins are pardoned. When you... Wrestle with the works of the flesh. They don't have the strength to pluck you out of God's hand. Isn't that wonderful? Otherwise we would not inherit the kingdom of God. They're not unforgivable sins. Though they may have earthly consequences. And thank God they're not. That we can still come to him today and say. Father forgive me. And you see that was the difference between. The tax collector and the Pharisee in that Luke 18 parable. The Pharisee stood up and said, God, 
Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. The tax collector looked at himself, couldn't lift his eyes to heaven. He just beat his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say about that, that tax collector? He went home justified. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he struggled with sin. He knew he fell short of God's glory. We know that. It's not a license to sin. It's a freedom to repentance. And all the grace that God has for us. As I said last week, it's amazing that there is more grace with God than there is sin in all of us. These are things that thirdly and lastly must be overcome. Sin is serious. Don't ever think as a Christian your sin isn't serious because you're under the blood. (laughs) All sin is serious. It's serious because Christ Jesus had to be crucified in order for our sins to be quenched. We have the cross that we're always looking at and saying... There's what my sin deserved. That cursed death, that eternal death, judgment of God for all my sins. I deserve to be forsaken by God. And it took Christ in our place, dying on the cross to quench that judgment, to atone for all of our sins. And for the Father to be able to come to say to the one who says, I believe in Jesus, God saying, I forgive you all your sins. I accept you as righteous. Sin is serious. But we read here in verse 24 that in that cross, Jesus not only only accomplished our justification, but he also crucified our flesh with its passions and desires. We don't have a right to say, I can't help this sin. It's part of me. It's going to be with me the rest of my life. Just get used to it. Get used to me. We can't say that. Because that sin, the works of the flesh, have also been crucified. And we're going to get into that more next week, but... Note this, that truly justified people still having these natural passions for sin which is broken can know their sins, mourn their sins, hate their sins, seek to be rid of these self-gratifying desires because Christ has crucified them. The works of the flesh have been put to death in that way through the glory of the cross. And these sins are here now to be overcome, put to death, righteousness put on, so that I am walking in holiness with my God. And a truly justified person will know this change. I ask you, if you claim to be a Christian, do you see this inward change in your heart? Not the outward change. Anyone can change outwardly before people. But this inward change. And this inward change of heart is what begins to reflect the outward godliness in my life. Thank God the Spirit's at work in me. Can you say that? And if you can, my friends, that's not the reason for God's grace. 
That's not the reason for your salvation. That's the fruit of it. That's what's growing in you. That's what God by His Spirit is producing in you because He has justified you. That's why it is wrong for us when somebody says that they are a Christian and we see them committing a sin. It is wrong for us to say and look at them and say, "Uh, they're not a Christian, look what they did. It's right for us to go up and say, you're a Christian. This isn't behavior that is becoming holiness in God. That's very different, isn't it? Than saying to someone, they're not a Christian, look what they did. Because our putting to death of sin is a fruit of our salvation. Not the reason for it. Praise God. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd all be looking at each other and in the mirror saying, you're not a Christian, you're not a Christian. Yes, I am. Thank God I'm struggling with sin. And it's being put to death. Because that's the sign of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God warring in me, warring against the flesh, and helping me to walk in the Spirit. That's the life of a Christian. Does that define you? And it can define you. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know what it is to be forgiven and accepted by God, this defines you. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the flesh and its lusts.